Hi, I'm David Franklin, and you're listening to Season 2 of the Shintaido of America podcast. Shintaido, in case you haven't heard this word, is an amazing body movement practice, a dynamic and creative holistic health exercise invented by Japanese martial artists in the 1960s. Shintaido can be a way to open up to a deeper connection with ourselves, with our community, and with nature. In the first episode of Season 2, you're going to hear an interview with visual artist and Shintaido practitioner Mario Uribe. People are afraid to scream or yell or make loud noises. But before we get to that, I'm going to read you an excerpt from Michael Thompson's autobiography, Untying Knots, a Shintaido Chronicle. Michael is one of only four master instructors of Shintaido in the world today, the only non-Japanese master instructor, and significantly, the only master instructor who had no prior background in martial arts before starting to practice, as you will soon hear. He studied Shintaido in Japan with the founder of the discipline, Hiroyuki Aoki, but our story begins shortly before his first encounter with this unique movement discipline, which was to be not in Japan, but in France. Okay, ready? Here we go. Untying Knots, a Shintaido Chronicle by Michael Thompson. Part 1, French Connections. Chapter 1, The Drunken Boat. In the fall of 1971, after a two-year tour of duty as an assistant professor of French at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York, I headed to New York City with some friends who were going to help send me off to Europe on a transatlantic crossing aboard the QE2. I later renamed the ship the Bateau Ivre after Rambaud, since I was immersed in an alcoholic haze from the time of the send-off party until I disembarked at Le Havre in France. The period I spent at Hobart and William Smith coincided with the peak of the student protests over the U.S. participation in the Vietnam War and the accompanying social and sexual transformation of American culture. The university was no longer an ivory tower cut off from the ebb and flow of national and international politics or social upheavals. Students were suddenly forced to deal with larger questions than their own intellectual, social, or professional development. I participated in a protest march in Washington, teach-ins relating to the role of military recruitment and training in universities, discussions about the origins and manifestations of black power, women's rights, etc. It seemed as if the world I had constructed for myself up to that point had lost its validity and I my bearings. There were professors who still held to a philosophy that maintained that the highest value was what they called the life of the mind, shielded from the mundane and transitory activities of the outside world. But this didn't play with the students, and, with a like-minded group of younger teachers, I cast my lot with them. How, as a proponent of French existentialism, most notably the writings of Albert Camus, could I sit on the sidelines and not get involved in the most significant social and political movement of my time? According to these writers, you had to make a choice, define your existence, and engage yourself in life. Otherwise, you were just being defined by your personal history and cultural milieu. 
As a result, I spent an exhilarating two years at the colleges, living each day as it came and nearly to its fullest, although often slightly out of control. The downside to this adventure was that my commitment to teaching French language and literature wavered, and it began to seem inconceivable that I could ever dedicate the rest of my life to that profession. Since I had followed the traditional student path, BA, MA, PhD, I felt that I was quite undeveloped in many ways and not qualified to expound on great ideas, especially to people who were much too young to really understand them, even in the unlikely event that I did. Of course, the old guard who had been pushed aside during the tumultuous student protest years didn't disappear and didn't forget who had helped to undermine their authority. So some of us were eased out when it came time to renew our contracts. This turned out to be advantageous for me because it helped force me out into the real world where I could engage myself. I had been fortunate to find the job in the first place, and it has generally been my philosophy that, when it is time to move on, it is better to do so, rather than trying to maintain the status quo. So I did not contest the non-renewal of my contract. On the other hand, I later realized that it is much easier to leave a job than it is to rid oneself of old habits and attitudes. When I had a chance to reflect upon those two years, I realized that, had I been a couple of years older, I was in my early thirties at the time, I might have sided with the old guard, and so I am thankful for the extended adolescence that seems to be the fate of many academics. Toward the end of my tenure at the colleges, one of those events befell me that, looking back twenty-three years later, completely altered the course of my life. On the day after a major snowstorm, I was walking in the street with a couple of female undergraduates because the sidewalks hadn't been cleared yet. A small pickup truck passed us, and the driver honked and gestured for us to move aside. I'm not sure whether I made some kind of flippant gesture, but at any rate, the driver screeched to a halt, jumped from his truck, and began to shove and threaten me. A surreal dialogue ensued in which he invited me to strike the first blow, presumably to give him license to retaliate. Remember, it was a small college town and violence was much more civilized in those days. I refused and he tried to challenge me by setting up hypothetical situations. For example, what if he were a Russian commie? Or what if he attacked my companions? I allowed that in the latter case, I would probably respond, but since he hadn't, I had no intention of striking the first blow. Then a strange turn of events occurred. His feelings suddenly changed, and he invited us back to his place for a beer. We were so petrified of this madman that we accepted and spent an awkward hour listening to him berate his wife and generally bemoan his low station in life. We parted with handshakes all around, and that was the end of it. Well, not quite, because during the confrontation, I was literally paralyzed with fear. My mouth still worked, but the rest of me shut down completely. This response may, in fact, have saved the day, but I was deeply disturbed by my impotence in this crisis. 
I understood that I had been in a situation which called for a fight-or-flight response, and I had felt incapable of carrying out either alternative. This episode brought to mind a previous life crisis, a few years earlier, which featured self-induced and reinforced panic attacks. I was convinced at the age of 29 that I was suffering from some form of heart disease and the sensation of my own heartbeat, which seemed to reverberate throughout my body, terrified me, serving to drive my blood pressure and pulse rate through the ceiling. This vicious circle reached its zenith in a bar in Buffalo, New York, when I realized that even if I didn't die of heart failure, I was sure to drive myself crazy. I stumbled home and, like the old Indian chief in the film Little Big Man, lay down and asked my maker to take me away. Fortunately, like that character, my decision was premature, and I fell asleep peacefully for the first time in several months. The aftershocks continued for a year or so, but, by giving up and accepting death, I had been partially, if temporarily, freed from my tormentor, who was none other than myself. Unfortunately, this did not represent liberation from all fear, as my encounter with the truck driver demonstrated. Both episodes ended positively, as it turned out, but I was still disturbed by the presence of such fear at what I took to be the core of my being. I could envision living a fearful existence, avoiding situations where inner strength or courage might be summoned, and perhaps ending up like Marcel Proust, metaphorically at least, who was so sensitive to the outside world, specifically allergens, that he ended his life in a hermetically sealed environment. This seemed to be what lay down the road for me if I didn't find a way to exercise my demons. But, for the time being, I was content to try to anesthetize myself with alcohol and sensuality, and the trip to France was to provide the occasion. You've just been hearing an excerpt from Michael Thompson's Untying Knots, a Shintaito Chronicle, and this is the Shintaito of America podcast. I'm David Franklin. We're about to hear my interview with visual artist and Shintaito practitioner Mario Uribe. But before we get to that, if you're enjoying today's podcast, the most important thing you can do to help out is to tell people about us. I want to give a big shout out to those of you who have already shared the podcast on social media and who gave us a good rating on whichever podcasting app they're using. So it would be great if you could just hit pause right now and just do that. Share the podcast on social media and give us a good rating and then hit play again. I'll wait. Okay, thanks. On with the show. Our guest today, Mario Uribe, is a native Californian who received a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree from the California Institute of the Arts in 1971. Since then, he has worked professionally as an artist, exploring a diversity of media from animation to painting, performance art, video, printmaking, drawing, murals, digital art, sculpture, Asian calligraphy, illustration, and graphic design. He has had numerous one-man exhibits of his work at galleries throughout the world. 
His fine art paintings, prints, and drawings are in both museums and private collections, and his mural designs for public places have won him international competitions. His more than 50 poster designs are included in the permanent collections of the Grunwald Center for the Arts, as well as the prestigious Musée de l'Affiche in Paris, France. For the last 20 years, he has focused his energy in creating art that is healing in the healthcare field, completing hundreds of commissions at hospitals across the United States. He is a practitioner of traditional Japanese Zen arts, including tea ceremony, and in addition to his job as artistic director of Art Start, he sits on the board of the American School of Japanese Arts, a nonprofit educational arts organization, and on the board of Shintaido of America. He is also a founding faculty member of the Chaplaincy Institute for the Arts and Interfaith Ministries, an ecumenical arts educational center in Berkeley, California. Here's our interview with Mario Uribe. Hi, Mario. Thanks for joining us. Hi, David. Happy to be here. I'm going to jump right in um, because one of the Japanese art forms you are familiar with besides Shintaido is tea ceremony. I want to ask you about Japanese tea ceremony because through the oral tradition, I've heard that there were some tea ceremony experts in the group, the Rakutenkai group that originated Shintaido. I know very little about tea ceremony. Can you give us a short beginner's introduction to Japanese tea ceremony? You know, it's really, uh, ceremony is not really the right word for it uh, because it's really the act of making tea for someone. And uh, the word in Japanese is chan no yu, which means hot water for tea. And uh, that's all it is. It's a, it's a hospitality thing. It's, uh, it comes from Zen Buddhism. And it's all, it's all about being present. But a lot of the, uh, it has a lot of things in common with Shintaido, though, because uh, all those Japanese arts were influenced by Zen Buddhism. So there's a common thread between tea ceremony and calligraphy and martial arts and uh, flower arranging and no theater. So in tea ceremony, there is a host and there are guests, uh, and they just sort of spend time focusing on the moment. They can talk about the weather or the tea or the scroll sets sort of the tone for the meeting, but they don't talk about their aches and pains or if they won the lottery or what, you know, all of that is left out. And so the essence of tea ceremony is sharing a hot, some hot tea and a sweet and talking about things that re- really matter, things of the moment. Uh, if it's raining outside, what it feels like, or the scroll says this, and how does it affect you? Yeah. If I watch a group of Japanese tea ceremony experts, am I going to see their body movements? Do they resemble everyday typical body movements, or is there something special about the way they, the posture and the movement? There's something special in that it has in common with Shintaido as well, because how you move uh, has to do with ki, you know, and so your, your posture and your movement has to be not superfluous, but just to the point. I'm not sure if I can describe it, but if you're going to make a move, it's, it's the most uh, efficient move that you're going to make, the most direct and simple, uh, nothing extraneous. 
And so everything in tea is like that and sort of prescribed, but uh, even though there's a kata in tea, in shintaido and calligraphy, everything, that you follow when you're learning, as you practice more and more, your own personality sort of interferes with it a little bit and it becomes your own practice. Uh, so it, it changes, it's unique with every person. I think for listeners who might not be so familiar with Japanese culture, just to de-jargonize our conversation, I should explain the word kata in its most basic meaning means a, a sequence of actions, a specified sequence of actions, which can be useful in martial arts, as you said, in tea ceremony, maybe in other Japanese art forms as well. So, Mario, let me take you back in time to a place where you and I both met at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago, 1993. I remember it well. If a person were walking across one of the bridges across the Chicago River, and if they saw your artwork, what would they see there? What would they experience? Can you describe it for us? It was a collaboration between a lot of people, including some tea people, as well as calligraphy people and Shintaido people that put together that performance, if you want to call it a performance. We built a tea house that was in the exact proportions of a very famous, the Yuin Tea House in Kyoto. It's part of the uh, Urasenka, which is the, the largest school of tea practice. But it was all made out of PVC pipe of different thicknesses. And uh, it, sort of, it was like an outline of the tea house. And it was floating on two rowboats, I guess. And um, a there was a, a platform built on top, and it went on to the Chicago River. But the whole idea was to have tea sort of bring that energy of tea, the beauty, the simplicity of it, uh, just out in the open for people to see from, from the riverside. People would just be walking along the river and see this tea house floating. They wouldn't know it was a tea house, really, an outline of a house, kind of. And, and people making tea and serving and talking and drinking it. So, One of the things that strikes me about Shintaido, which you just alluded to, is, you know, there are some completely modern elements, some elements that really are not Japanese and come from, let's say, world culture or contemporary art, and then there are some very traditional elements. It's, a, it's about your approach to blending these contemporary and modern artistic elements with traditional aspects of Japanese culture in your artwork in general, which we can see in the tea house, but also in a lot of your other artwork. Oh, it's, it's definitely there. Uh, I think it's in my nature to, to combine and collaborate with other people, making things, creating art uh, and events. It, my background was, uh, I grew up in Mexico, so, and, but there was a Japanese influence because my parents had lived in Japan for a while, just before the war, for about a year. So that has been an influence in my artwork, because artwork is all I've ever done. That's all I wanted to do, and that's all I'm still doing. So I think that the Japanese influence, as well as my traditional sort of Western education uh, and upbringing, 
a fusion of the two was a result. My artwork, my expression was a fusion of those two things of some very traditional Asian sort of philosophies and way of doing things and, uh, and the Western of, you know, and they're totally different. They're totally different because uh, in art school and Western teaching, you want to make things look good. You know, the the better they look good or the cleaner or tighter your artwork is, the more impressive supposedly it is. And in Asia, it's, that has nothing to do with anything. You want to be exact, but you want to have integrity with what you do and express who you are at that moment uh, in most of the art. So um, I sort of combined those two, and that's what I've been doing for well, 40 years. You really, you really read my mind with that question because I was going to ask you about how art is taught in the Western world. How, how do we train somebody to become an artist, which is a fundamentally creative enterprise? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, uh, sure. In both cultures, I think the more you do it, the better you get at it. That's, you know, a practice, practice, practice. And... Um, but just the end result is, is different because of the way of thinking is different. But um, I think just doing it over and over, you learn from your own mistakes. And uh, the more you do it, the, the more it becomes a part of you. I want to read something that you wrote me. It's difficult to explain the difference between religion and spirituality. To me, spirituality has to do with one's awareness and realization of a personal connection to the universe. Some of your artwork clearly touches on political issues. Do you see any connection between spirituality as you've defined it, connection, and these uh, you know, images that have the comment on the, the current state of affairs, what people might call politics? Maybe I was somewhat politically involved uh, before I immersed myself in traditional Japanese arts. Um, while I was in art school, it was in the 60s, the war in Vietnam was going on, and when we were, you know, marching and demonstrating and, and uh, protesting. So there was a need to sort of express your feelings about what, what's going on politically or socially and around you. And uh, once I began to study tea ceremony and calligraphy and everything, and then my, my coming in, in contact with Kas Tanahashi, who's very politically involved worldwide, um, and I worked very closely with him. We traveled all over the United States and Mexico doing political kind of performances with a big brush. That just sort of reinforced that. And so whenever I see something going on around me, I, want, I use my artwork and I use the Zen circle sometimes as a, a critique or a prayer or whatever um, to express my annoyance, I guess, at, at things that are going on, uh, especially right now. Yeah. For our listeners, I want to mention that Kaz Tanhashi is a calligrapher and hopefully, I can't promise anything right now, he might be a future guest on this podcast. We'd love to have him. He's been uh, deeply involved, or let's say, involved with Shintaido for Absolutely. quite a long time. Yes. When you first encountered Shintaido, was the artistic aspect of Shintaido immediately evident to you? 
it, it was all very apparent to me, you know, the dance aspects, the, the just sort of the moving according to your, your own awareness and um, the opening up and the letting things in, energy and other things in. Uh, all of that, to me, was wonderful and very spiritual. And just the, uh, the fact that you could scream at the top of your lungs uh, and express a certain part of yourself was important. I had never done that before. And uh, it all made sense. I think one of the things that people find difficult to understand about Shintaido is its connection to the Western art tradition, which is equally as important if you read the Shintaido textbook, as I did uh, into a microphone recently, um, which is equally as important, maybe, as the cultural influences from its home country of Japan. So as a person who's, you know, has a background both in uh, Japanese art and in Western art, uh, how do you you perceive the influence of the Western artistic concept in Shintaido? I think that uh, mostly... Because Shintaido is about opening and letting things in uh, and expressing yourself and growing out. Um, And I think that you can't do that if you limit yourself uh, to just one way of thinking or only one way of doing things, that you have to be open to more than one perspective. And I think Shintaido does that. So let me just ask one more question. You were talking about using some Shintaido movements when you teach art, is that right? Absolutely, because it relaxes people and it opens them up and it lets them express themselves, especially um, the voice. You, you know, uh, people are afraid to scream or yell or make loud noises, but Shintaido just kind of you practice. So I would, st- I would always begin the class with Ten Shingo So. We'd do some warm-up exercises. It was like a Shintaido class, really. And, uh, and I'd get them all loosened up doing Ten Shingo So. And I, I said, don't make any sound. Just make believe you're making sound. And uh, then we'd start quietly making the sound get louder and louder. And by the end, they were screaming. And they loved it because it's sort of a... Uh, um, well, it's a kind of catharsis for many people. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, it's a way to let out a lot of stuff. And um, so I've used that. The seaweed exercise was another right. one. And um, yeah. It's very interesting because this word catharsis does come from ancient Greek drama. It's part of the, it's, it's considered to be part of the arts. And, and by the way, this is, uh, your, what you're describing is a drawing class, the beginning of a drawing class or painting? It was, uh, and involved all of those things, actually. There were uh, students who were uh, part of a program called Art Start, and uh, they would come and we would find commission, commission work, painting murals, doing mosaics, doing all sorts of things. And so... This is just at the beginning of the day while they were learning, designing the project or whatever, uh, a way to just get into it. Mario Ribe, thank you very much for joining us on the Shintaido of America podcast. It's been my pleasure, David, and good seeing you again, talking to you. This is the Shintaido of America podcast. 
You've just been hearing an interview with artist and Shintaido practitioner Mario Uribe, and I'm Shintaido instructor David Franklin. We're nearly done, but be sure to listen through to the end of the credits for the cherry. But before the cherry, I'm going to pass the hat around among you who are hearing the sound of my voice and do a bit of busking here on the information superhighway. Shintaido of America is a totally member-supported non-profit organization, and there are many ways to support our truly micro-budget production of educational materials. And I really mean that. We produce a huge amount of content on volunteer power, but some things just require a few bucks in the bank. So one way is to make a one-time donation in any amount, or become a member of Shintaido of America for $60 per year if you're hearing this in 2023. It would mean a great deal to our hardworking team. You can do that, sign up for our free email newsletter, and also find all kinds of free educational resources at our website, where you can also find all the previous episodes of this podcast, which is www.shintaido.org. That's www.shintaido.org. That's whiskey, whiskey, whiskey. Sierra Hotel, India, November. Tango Alpha, India. Delta Oscar. Oscar Romeo Golf. Got it? You can also find us on Instagram, on Facebook, and on YouTube by searching for Shintaido of America. And our email address is podcast at shintaido.org. Our episode today was recorded and edited by me, David Franklin, with support from Sarah Baker, Connie Borden, Teresa Soldatova, Jim Sterling, the Joe Zawilski Memorial Fund, and of course, the members of Shintaido of America. Thank you. Okay, here's the cherry. Most evil in the world is much more subtle than a single-minded physical attack. Aggression does not have to be physical, and harmful intentions are often mixed with good intentions and with fear. Most people are not enlightened masters, nor are they single-minded doers of evil. In most of our interactions with real people, the possible outcomes are much more nuanced and varied than life versus death. This gives us a great advantage over the ancient samurai warriors it may be possible to destroy the evil and leave the good. That was a quote from psychiatrist and Shintaido practitioner Michael Bogenschutz, M.D., from an article titled Confronting Evil in Body Dialogue, the Shintaido Journal, issue number nine. And guess what? You can find back issues of Body Dialogue at our website, www.shintaido.org. Thanks for listening to the Shintaido of America podcast. Contents of this podcast, copyright Shintaido of America 2023. Shintaido, opening to life.